Wednesday, January 9th. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Asset Management, Tim Hanson, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Happy Wednesday, guys. Howdy. Hey, happy Wednesday. Corporate earnings season has officially kicked off, but we Whee! we will not be talking about Alcoa. Oh. We just won't. we got other stuff to talk about. We have a wireless battle. We have a battle of hedge fund titans. We're going to talk a little Europe. But we are going to start with Apple, because the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Apple is working on a lower-end iPhone, and I'm quoting directly from the journal now, while Apple has explored such a device for years, the plan is progressing, and a less expensive version of its flagship device could launch later this year. The article uh, goes on to say, Tim, that they could pull the plug, um, but let's be honest, if they do this, this is a pretty big shift in corporate strategy, and I think... Uh, I was saying to Mac, our producer, earlier, I I feel like if you could go behind the walls at Apple, the people who are arguing in favor of this are probably talking about Apple's dwindling market share, and the people arguing against it are probably saying, no, this isn't how we got to where we are today by just launching all these products. Yeah, this is, the I think, one of the first things I've seen come out of Apple since Steve Jobs passed away that that I think he would have been very staunchly opposed to. Because obviously, to make a lower-cost device... You have to cut some corners. You got to do some things that aren't, you know, that aren't perfect. Right. You know, I've, I was recently reading the Steve Jobs, you know, biography, and you know, he made a point early on in Apple's uh, Apple's life cycle, even when they were making the earliest Apple computers, that you know, the the, the circuit boards inside the computer even had to be elegantly printed. He was willing to pay more for that because craftsmen, you know, make everything right. So to the extent that a cheaper a cheaper phone would cut some corners. You know, I, I'm not sure it's a great idea for Apple because it, it it hurts their brand equity a little bit and whatever you know. And the market that they're diving into is a very competitive one, mm-hmm. where people are you know not necessarily purchasing phones for the reasons that people purchase Apple phones, which is superior usability, superior look and feel. Um, you know, and 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 so you put those things together, and it's a little bit of a questionable decision. You know, obviously they could they could still kill it. And, you know, I think Apple's done a tremendous job over the past couple of years, frankly, of getting people who shouldn't be buying iPhones, who can't afford them, to buy them, which is why they've made so much money and, and, and offering a lower price product. I'm not sure that's a, that's a good strategy for them. Joe, we've talked about the ecosystem at Apple, particularly with iTunes, and the more that they can get people into that, the more locked in, for lack of a better phrase, they are. What do you think of this story? Well, I assume that is why they're doing it, and it's not just a naked cash grab, because I agree with Tim that it's dilutive to the brand and certainly going to be lower margin phones. I do think, though, that this is a really questionable decision. I, I agree that you know, ultimately, if you win the platform, you get dominance and market share on mobile. That's incredibly valuable, but Apple sells... Basically, the hardware, the software exists with Apple to sell the hardware, and that's where they make all their money is the one-time sale on the hardware. And if you go out there and you're basically just trying to gain market share just for the point of selling lower-margin phones, it doesn't seem to be a, a winning long-term strategy. A couple of numbers in reference to the global market share. In Q4 of 2011, Apple's global market share for smartphones was 23%. As of Q3 2012, that is down to 14.5%. On the other hand, Samsung in Q3 of 2010, their share was just under 9%, and Q3 of 2012, up to more than 31%. We talked yesterday on the podcast about their most recent quarter. They sold 62 million smartphones. Um, and obviously, the, the elephant in the room here, Tim, Google, um, with their Android 
operating system powering so many of those sort of lower-cost rival smartphones. Well, you know, I've gotten ribbed in this form in the past for having been bearish on Apple, and obviously that, that was that was early. But, I mean, the um, the reason for that bearish— Is that a dig at me? No, like no, a, no. <laughs> a soft jab? No, no, no. That, was, I was okay. bearish, that was a dig at myself. Um, you know, but the reason for that bearishness or the rationale behind it was that when you get to be so big and you get to be so successful— you run up against the law of large numbers, which is, I mean, there's only so big a market in the world of people who can afford a five, six, seven hundred dollar, thousand dollar phone or tablet, right? And as they move into places like China and they want to go to places like India, the affordability of that phone becomes a remarkably, you know, difficult thing for for the mass consumer there to get. And so, what you're seeing here, this is Apple now trying to do something to go where the market is which is people who can't afford the high-priced iPhone. Right. And, and that's where Samsung has been picking up you know, its, its share. I mean, that was also the bullish case for Nokia, which never played out. But that was, you know, at some point, the market for mobile phones worldwide is enormous, right? But what mobile phone can these can certain consumers, the mass affluent, you know, the mass consumer in these emerging markets, what level phone can they afford? It's not the iPhone. Apple's recognizing that. They may be hitting up against that ceiling earlier than many expected. And so I, I would be skeptical about Apple's ability not only to deliver a low-cost smartphone that grabs back a lot of market share, but you know, of their ability to grow at such high rates you know, here on out as well. Yeah, and we saw such similar dynamics play out with PCs that it's startling to me that more people have taken so long to catch on to the, the similar dynamics with that and how ultimately you're going to see more people shift to the lower-cost phone. People just don't just like cars or any other purchase, most people don't buy the most expensive item out there. They buy the best value for them. And for most people, that's an Android phone. How do you think Google is feeling about this news? Do you think that they are happy in some ways that Apple is, yeah, I think to they, some extent, abandoning that advantage? Or well, do you I, feel I think like, they'd be happy to have you know, Apple come back and play in their sandbox, right? Because it means, you know, I think Apple for, for many years, and Steve Jobs did this, you know, from you know, talk about a slick marketing personality. I mean, you know, it's to make Apple, you know, seem better than everybody else. You know, it had its own platform, it had its own stuff. The design was perfect. They had these great launches. Everybody tried to copy. You know, to the extent Apple's now coming back down market, you know, and, and is willing to to trade punches with you know a faceless Korean conglomerate. You know, that that's that's a good thing for 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 those companies that want to compete with them and want to be in the same league as Apple. Apple's coming back down to their league. So just to wrap up on Apple's stock, which recently last fall was over $700 a share has since come down to, you know, 525, 530, that sort of thing. You look at this story and it sounds like this is not a reason to buy Apple stock. Well, my my argument all along has been that I think Apple's more cyclical. I mean, technology companies are cyclical, but by definition, because of how fast technology changes. And Apple has successfully, for many years, not been a cyclical company, thanks to innovation and new product launches. But eventually, I mean, I think cyclicality catches up with them. You know, and 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 that was why you know I thought Tim Cook was going to have a hard time because he wasn't Steve Jobs, and Steve Jobs was great at seeing the next thing that helped them avoid the cycle. But you know, here here comes the cycle. Um, and, and like I said, I was probably I was probably early, but I don't think I was necessarily wrong. Yeah, what I hate about having Tim on the show is we agree on so much that I have a hard time <laughs> adding value when he goes first. But yes, I, I agree with that as well. You can go first on this story. Uh, okay. Dish Network is offering to buy Clearwire, a wireless network operator. Um, here's where the fun begins. Currently, Sprint owns 51% of Clearwire and uh, late 2012 had made an offer to buy the remaining 49%. 
And because it is the majority owner, Sprint would need to approve the Dish Network offer, which is a higher offer. They've already said they're not going to do that. Um, but the second largest shareholder currently for Clearwire is a, a fund, uh, Crest Financial. And they said, hey, higher offer? We're, we're happy to look at that. What do yeah. you make of all this? I don't think Dish is going to seal this deal. Sprint's going to have to come back and offer more money. And if Sprint didn't accept the higher offer, there would be lawsuits out the wazoo. And they, clearly the easier route, and we're not talking about vast sums of money here, uh, would be for them to just one-up Dish's offer or even just match it because Dish's offer is fairly convoluted. It's not just like a straight acquisition. And I think Sprint could pretty easily defend saying, look, we're offering the same amount, but it's a simpler transaction. But if you're looking at the wireless space as it's currently constructed, you know, Sprint, Verizon, AT&T, et cetera, one of the surprising things to me about this story is, you know, sort of like people say about the New York Yankees every season, oh, they just go out and buy the best players. It it just seems like Dish Network, this satellite TV operator, is just like, um, yeah, we're just going to buy a wireless network. We're not going to build our own. We're just going to go out and buy it. Yeah, I mean, good luck with that. Clearwire <laughs> doesn't really have a great network of their own. There's going to be a lot of investment involved, both on you know, the actual technical side and on marketing. For Dish to step into a very mature market already, it's, you know, a bit of arrogance there. Now, what I assume they're thinking is they can do a lot of bundling with their actual cable offerings, and that's true, but they're paying a good bit for it up front. And the real issue is just that they've tapped all their domestic cable opportunities. Their content costs are going up faster than they can raise prices, and this is where you know, they're looking, we got all, got all this cash, we need to find something to throw it at. What do you think when you look at a story like this, whether it's related specifically to Dish or just sort of the wireless uh, investing world? Well, I'll, make, I'll make two points. Um, the first is that, as Joe noted, if, if they were to turn down a higher offer, and rejected the people who would be happiest about that are all the lawyers in Delaware because right. they would be the Delaware court system would would be active very quickly in terms of to come, the um, making sure they were defending their, the board's fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. You know, having said that, this spectrum stuff is is interesting, and it's not an industry I know. I'm not an expert in it. I've just sort of watched from from the sidelines. But people may remember the Phil Falcone, Harbinger. Um, what was the name of that that spectrum company he owned? Oh. Sky Skybridge um, or something like that. But the story was basically that he bought this company that owned Spectrum that was supposed to be used for like shortwave radios and was hoping to get it re-registered so that it could be used for cell phone calls. But it was too close to the GPS Spectrum. Okay. So the military didn't want to let anybody potentially interfere with GPS, right? But – you know, there, it looked if he could get it, you know, re-regulated, it was a huge profit opportunity because there's so much volume now surging through Spectrum that just having some and being able to, you know, contract it out, you know, at, at times of peak use seems like a very interesting and profitable enterprise. I, you know, the United States, generally speaking, is is significantly behind many other world countries, even some emerging countries, in terms of the amount of wireless spectrum we have, yeah. the wireless access, the, the, the high-speed the internet access that, that people have. Um, and so, you know, arguably a, a company could do well just starting to pick up spectrum and use it more efficiently. You know, it's not necessarily – maybe DirecTV wouldn't even use it for their own stuff. They would just say, hey, if you're peaking and you're starting to throttle people, you know, for a modest fee – Come use our spectrum. And if it's not perfect, it's not the best spectrum in the world, it can still be used in, in certain geographies. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously valuable. I wonder if at some point we could be walking into a spectrum bubble here where there's kind of a land grab for it. And, you know, as broadband connections continue to improve at home and Wi-Fi hotspots 
continue to gain traction. You know, like your reliance on cellular signals for data is progressively just becoming less and less. I think it's going to be a long time before you have a phone that doesn't require, you know, 4G or, or LTE, but it's becoming less relevant for me, like in terms of the percentage of time that I use my phone, that it's not on Wi-Fi. So the, the real dark horse here is just more Wi-Fi. So when you see shares of Clearwire up 7% this morning as a result of this, you know, for lack of a better term, bidding war, that still doesn't get you all that fired up. No, I'm not really big on hopping into situations like this where I don't feel like I have an information edge. And I do think Sprint will come back with an incrementally better maybe or just matched offer. But you know, if you're an investor, I would say look for something else that you could put money in over a long time that will treat you well instead of following the dynamics and trying to nickel and dime your way to success with a, an auction. Like if you already that. own it, though, pretty worth a fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you're a shareholder of Clearwire, you're having a good day. Huzzah. Uh, one of the big stocks in the news today is Herbalife, which is a $4 billion nutrition company. Here's why Herbalife is in the news. The annual meeting is tomorrow. I think it's a special meeting. Is it a special meeting? I, I believe it's I a think special so. meeting. Um, well, it's going to be even more special. Uh, hedge fund manager Dan Loeb has taken an 8% stake in Herbalife. Shares were up close to 10% this morning, uh, immediately after that SEC filing was released. On the other side of the coin, we have Bill Ackman, also hedge fund manager, who last month just ripped Herbalife, ripped their business model, said he was betting more than a billion dollars against the stock. Called uh, it a pyramid scheme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what do you make of this, Tim, when you, when you see like these two hedge fund managers sort of going at each other with huge bats? Well, it's fun to watch. It's, it's fun, fun to watch, you know. And, and I hope Dan Loeb he, he he filed a passive stake, so we may not expect him to actually remark on the matter. But he's a wonderful letter writer, and if he does yeah, end he up getting resist. involved, I would I would enjoy to see what he has to say on this subject. You know, it's funny. I think Herbalife, the company and the business model, is not without its warts. <clears throat> I can't speak to all of the merits of Ackman's presentation or the rebuttal that Herbalife is allegedly going to present tomorrow. You know, but having said that, I think we're in a situation here where the truth doesn't necessarily matter because, you know, at some point you end up – it's just a function of – and this is a little bit of stock market geekery, so Joe will enjoy it. <laughs> but it's just a function of, you know, the float, which is the amount of stock that's out there to trade. And Ackman is short, you know, over 25 percent of the company. I don't think there are any other shares left to borrow and short. And meanwhile, you have other high-profile investors coming in to buy the stock, which is forcing it up. And presumably after tomorrow, Herbalife can start repurchasing its own stock, and it has, I think, $400 million and is highly cash generative. Um, so they're going to start putting a lot of pressure on that short position because, you know, I think all the things they can, they can start, you know, make, they can make it very expensive for Ackman to stay borrowed. Yep. They can declare, if they wanted to, a one-time dividend. They could even borrow and declare a huge one-time dividend, which Ackman would then be on the hook to pay. That would hurt. <laughs> He'd be on the hook to pay to everyone he borrowed stock from. So, if, you know, if he, it could become a very, very expensive position for him very, very quickly, which would then, you know, begs the question, would he have to start unwinding some of it? And if he did, that's one of those things that feeds on itself right. and would force the stock up very, very high. And then you've got, a, you've got I mean, he's caught in basically a, a short seller's death spiral, which would hurt. And, and even if Herbalife five years from now were declared a pyramid scheme and shut down – which I think is probably unlikely, but that's what Ackman thinks is going to happen. You know, I, I'm not sure he can hold the position. He says he can. I'm not sure he can do it. Um, 
it'll be it'll be really interesting to watch. But I think Dan Loeb is here not necessarily because he has comments on the merits of the company, but just because he sees the you know the function the of, stock opportunity. Yeah, right. And by putting his name on it, he can actually well. That's what you know. That's what's too. so funny also about this is I mean these celebrity investors are, are more and more using their track records, and and it's not wrong necessarily, but it's it's also it's not necess- it's not necessarily fair either, right? To you know, oh, I'm damn. It's it's a self perpetuating um, idea that oh, I'm long the stock, therefore it is a good idea. Was it well, a good? You know, they're learning Buffett's last great piece of wisdom: right. <laughs> put your name to good use. And you know, come out with a big presentation, you know, ostentatious, and 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 the market will follow you, and then these algorithms will feed on the momentum. It's 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 a really weird thing that's been happening in in some of these really high profile trades recently. And, and like I said, it's fun to watch. I don't think. You know, I don't have a position in the stock either way, but but certainly I'm an interested bystander. When you look at the stock, just a one year chart of the stock, it is absolutely one of these roller coasters. Um, last spring, it was seventy three dollars a share. It dropped down dramatically. Uh, all basically, it goes straight down to late December. It's uh, last couple of weeks, it's up about twenty five thirty percent, and certainly Dan Loeb's investment helps in that regard. But Joe, to your point about Buffett, it sounds like this is yet another one of those situations where the takeaway for investors is don't follow the big names just because they're a big name. Right. I mean, Dan Loeb and Bill Ackman both have incredible track records, and if you'd invested alongside oh, no, somebody's of them, is going to take a big hit here the next yes. <laughs> six months. Yeah, I was going to say, they can't both win. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what's fun about this. They can't both win. No, and I think individual investors would do best to stay on the sidelines in these kind of situations. I do think Ackman really a bit off more than he could chew here when you're talking about a business that if you were going this big on a short, you know, it better be a fraud with no upward catalyst. And in this case, you know, it's seemingly making a good bit of money. So it's not as though, even if you don't believe in the model itself, so long as it keeps going, you're swimming against uh, swimming against the tides here. It's just a very complicated, difficult way for him to make money. I want to wrap up uh, by talking about Europe because uh, stories out this week, uh, mainly about unemployment in the Eurozone, which uh, once a month on Motley Fool Money, we'll talk about the, the jobs report that comes out here in the U.S., Tim, unemployment in the Eurozone has risen 19 months in a row. And when you look and uh, up to 11.8% across the region, in Spain, it's over 26.5% unemployment. When you look at uh, people under the age of 25, 57% unemployment. Um, as someone who looks around the world for investments, when you look at Europe now as an investor, what do you see and what are your takeaways? So it's it's interesting because we're starting to get some I think we're starting to get some noise in the data. I saw an interesting research report out of Spain recently that basically said that even though official unemployment is rising in Spain, it's not because people aren't necessarily starting to work again. It's because they're working on basically under the counter, right? Because they don't want to pay the taxes. Oh, okay. And um that's in, that's interesting. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was basically saying that under the counter cash employment has has picked up noticeably, despite the fact that official unemployment figures continue to rise, and and that would be suspected in in a country where they're talking about austerity with pretty onerous tax rates, and that's you know certainly the case in other European countries. Having said that, I mean it's not I don't think anybody is forecasting that Spain's economy is is going to grow rapidly or Greece's economy is going to grow rapidly. They have certainly have some things to solve for. You know we we've we've taken the same view of Europe now. Um, for for a while, which is that we like European companies that are being treated as though they're European, but that aren't that really that European. 
And that trade is starting to, to, to close because a lot of people have caught on to it. You know, you look at Swatch, Adidas. These com- I mean, Swatch, you know, went from three, 375 Swiss francs to, to 500, I think, today over the past four or five months. You know, so people have caught on to that. Um, having, having said that, you know, the government in Europe, the governments in Europe have moved, you know, earth to make sure that no one has defaulted, left the Eurozone. And, and frankly, you know, anybody who's been on the sidelines of European banks that they thought they were going to fail or whatnot has been left behind by a pretty rapid rally over the last quarter. Right. Um, it certainly, you know, it certainly punished, um, it certainly punished us a little bit. Um, you know, but, you know, long-term investing, I don't think is about predicting what the government is going to do over the next six months. You know, I think it's about finding companies that stand on their own merits, buying them opportunistically, and then holding them for very long periods of time as they compound your investing dollars and they compound on, on high rates of return on equity. And you can find companies like that in Europe. I, I don't think they're Spanish banks, and they won't be Spanish banks for a very long time right. for a variety of reasons. You know, but Europe is, is home to so many great consumer brands. And, it, you know, it's hard to write off Europe when, you know, on, on the one hand, it's home to all these great consumer brands. And the thing everybody wants to talk about over the next 20 years is the rise of the middle class and upper middle class consumer in the emerging world. That, you know, that's a beneficial tailwind for them. So I think if people look at Europe through that lens, um, they can do well. I would not try to play the, the swings and political sentiment. Um, but, you know, the euro's weakening. People aren't vacationing in Europe. Good time to go. <laughs> you're, go- you're both going, right? Yeah. yeah not- separately, we both booked <laughs> trips to Spain for vacation the next couple months. And we also got a very good deal on hotels. No, it, it, you and your lovely bride are going uh, to Barcelona? Yeah. In February? Yes. Okay, and you, and you're going with your family, Tim, in what for okay. spring break in April? But we're going just south of Barcelona. We rented a uh, uh, a beach house, got a very good deal. <laughs> so I, people, to the extent you want to look at on, on HomeAway or you know whatever, now is the now time. is the time. There are a lot of empty vacation homes on the Spanish coast. That might be the the best tip uh, of this podcast. Just what is we, it? HomeAway is that the well HomeAway is the like the house sharing site. Yeah, but you, they have them. Yeah. You know, you can just. Google around and, and and look, and the internet will will find a vacant home for you at a very yeah. nice price. Yeah, we used that when we went to Omaha this year for the Berkshire meeting and got a fantastic deal, much cheaper than hotels. Yeah, I I, I really haven't spent time in either, but off of the two, Barcelona sounds a little bit more attractive to me than Omaha. That's that's not a knock on Omaha, but I'm just I'm just <laughs> better <understood>. sangria. <laughs> Joe Mager. Tim Hansen, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. You can read more from Tim at FoolFunds.com. And as always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.